extraordinary districts in extraordinary times. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. Today, April 22nd, I am talking with Corey Miklas, Superintendent of Seaford Public Schools in Seaford, Delaware. We began this podcast because it seemed to us that educators were being hammered with advice about how to respond to the unprecedented mass shutdowns in the wake of the coronavirus. Some of that advice seemed to come from folks who have never actually been responsible for running classrooms, schools, or districts. I wanted to hear from the folks who I know are thoughtful and expert. So I am interviewing principals and superintendents from around the country, educators who I have written or podcasted about. Some I have known for years, others are more recent acquaintances. Corey Miklas falls into the latter category. I met Dr. Miklas last year when I was researching his district, Seaford, to feature in season two of Extraordinary Districts. Back then, he was assistant superintendent to Dave Parrington, who came as superintendent to Seaford in 2015. Parrington had arrived at Seaford's Nader. Two of its four elementary schools had been identified by the state as being among the lowest performing in the state, and a third was about to be added to the list. Parrington brought Miklas from his previous district as assistant superintendent in charge of curriculum and instruction. In that role, Miklas worked with teachers and principals to completely revamp the way Seaford taught reading, and Seaford today is outperforming the state. It's third graders who have only gone to school with the new reading instruction are way outperforming the state. Just to give one piece of data, in 2015, only about one third of Seaford's third graders met state reading standards. In 2019, two thirds of Seaford's third graders met state reading standards. That is rapid improvement. Although all groups of students are improving, Seaford students of color and students from low-income backgrounds are improving faster than white middle-class students. In Extraordinary Districts, I explore what went into that improvement. Right around the same time that the episode on Seaford was released, Superintendent Parrington announced his retirement. I have to say I held my breath until I found out that Dr. Miklas was named superintendent. This is the first time we've talked since then. Welcome, Dr. Miklas. Thank you. I hope you and your family are safe and healthy. Yes, we are. This is uh, some challenging times, but uh, we're uh, figuring it out just like everyone else is. So you're a brand new superintendent faced with an unprecedented situation. How are you doing? So it's it's really uh, interesting because my first task as uh, superintendent was uh, wasn't uh, handling the coronavirus. It was actually passing a referendum. And what you do in a referendum is you ask your uh, taxpayers to um, raise their taxes to help fund schools. So that's the first thing I did starting uh, January first. Our vote. Um, it actually passed, and um, it's been years since the the Seaford School District has been able to uh, pass a referendum. And uh, in any leadership book or any class I've taken, it never—I'm not sure anyone ever told you to the first thing you should do as superintendent is ask your community to raise their taxes. 
So that was a challenge. But the good part about that was I got to go out into the public, meet with several different organizations, groups, et cetera. And, you know, it helped me get to know um, the community, which I thought was the silver lining. And now once we got through the referendum, this was the next challenge that came uh, that came on board. And uh, we're lucky in Delaware where we have 19 traditional school districts. So when this happened, I was able to be a part of that, that group of all 19 of us working on conference calls, et cetera, to start the initial planning for this. So that's one of the, the positives of being in a small state is really to be able to be able to work with others and try to work through this. Well, so, so Delaware closed schools on March 22nd, I think, right? Uh, actually, I think it was the 13th that Friday. Did you have much lead time to plan for that shutdown? No, not not a tremendous amount. I mean, we were following the the national news and 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 really trying to analyze what was uh, was going on. And and internally, we were we were planning, but none of us knew what it was going to look like. So it was business as usual for a long time. And then once that decision was made, that's when the real planning began. Your district has a hospital in it. Um, and so I imagine that you, many of your parents are health workers. Um, have you had a spike in cases of coronavirus yourselves? So at that time, I mean, we weren't, we weren't really aware of, um, there were no positive cases, you know, I'm going back to March 13th. And then I would say probably until the last two weeks, we haven't heard much about our community, staff, et cetera. Now that is that is starting to change. Uh, I've been working very closely with the mayor and the president of uh, Nanakoke Hospital. And what we've been doing um, before the restrictions came to really stay in your house and wear a mask, we were doing a Friday um, basically recorded message where we'd all come together and I would give updates on the school. They would give updates on the hospital and the mayor would give updates in regards to how the police and, and fire were handling this from a community aspect. And that was really positive for our community to see the three of us working together. And then as those weeks went on, you started seeing that we were six, you know, spread out six feet apart in our videos. And then now what happens from probably the last two, three weeks, we've been recording videos on an iPhone and just sending them in. And then somebody at the city will um, splice that together and, and post this message out. And we have all really tried to work with our um, with our hospital for anything they need. We've done some drives and, and we went around to our school or some of our special programs, nurse's office. We've looked for masks, hand sanitizers, um, and we have donated some supplies and materials to our local hospital. Um, we are we're going to be working with our students, you know, who are who are doing this remote online learning. We're trying to have them do some messages for hospital staff on a positive side. So we're just trying to be a really good partner. Well, that I, that's interesting that it, so the school system is really deeply embedded fully in the community as opposed to sort of sitting outside of it in some way. Yeah, this was, you know, when I became superintendent, that was one of my main priorities was really get engaged in the community. And um, again, because of the referendum and because of this coronavirus, it has really thrust me into that into that position. So 
again, sometimes I try to find the silver lining and I feel like, um, you know, these challenges has, has really brought us together to work through the, the, the problems. So I, I probably should have described Seaford a little bit more. Um, it's, it's in, um, it's in rural Delaware. It once was the uh, Dacron capital of the world. Uh, nylon back capital when of the world. Nylon. Oh, uh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> nylon capital of the world. Uh, back when DuPont had a plant there, uh, it closed its plant some years ago and kind of plunged the entire area into uh, basically a very low income area. You have a bunch of poultry plants in your um, vicinity. Have they been hit? I've been hearing about meatpacking plants in South Dakota and other places. Has the coronavirus hit the poultry plants much? Yeah. So this has really popped up in the last two weeks where the way they report in Delaware it's um, they they've been doing it by county. So Newcastle County, where the University of Delaware is located, that's where the first cases were um, originated in the state, and those numbers were high. Um, Kent County, in the middle of the state, ha- has the lowest numbers, but we've been noticing in the last few weeks, Sussex County numbers have been going up rapidly, and you know the governor's monitoring these things. We have a lot of conference call with the the governors and what we're or with the governor. Uh, what we're seeing in the numbers is the cases in Sussex County are going up and they seem to be tied from the reports we're seeing to the poultry plants. So and I that's where you are. You, Seaford's in Sussex County, just to, just to correct. Clarify. Yeah, that's correct. So you mentioned that your students are doing remote learning. Um, what does that look like? Uh, have you been able to make sure that students have computers and Wi-Fi? What is What's going on there? So we really tried to phase our plan out, knowing our population. Um, we have, um, it's a high poverty area. So our, our initial strategy out of the gate was to just make connections with our community. That was the most important you know, thing we wanted to do. We wanted to make sure we're making phone calls home. We wanted to make sure that people were safe. And... Um, and that was our first goal. And what we did was we sent home, we called them a choice board with a lot of different activities. And we made sure we sent them to all families because we didn't feel equity is important for us. We didn't want people having to come to schools to pick things up. So we actually sent and did some postings, some mailings rather. And then after we got through that, the next phase was really taking a look at getting supplies, materials in the students' hands. We sent home some books, and we've also done um, some uh, computers. There's two challenges there with technology. One is obviously the device. So currently, we've given out over 600 uh, computer devices to our, our students. But the bigger issue that's, um, that's hard for us in our rural area is just access to the internet. And, um, you know, there's some carriers right now who will, they're offering, you know, um, free internet um, for two months and they just have to call. And, and I've been working closely with some of these companies to make sure that when our parents and families call, they can, they can get on and it's, everyone knows we're in a Title I school, so we don't have to worry about payment, et cetera. But we actually have some areas that there's no connection at all. So we have really had to think 
about how we're going to handle these situations. We've had staff helping families um, actually connect to the internet and driveways. Um, we've posted a lot of information about where the hotspots are in town. So if they had to come in, you can actually go into our um, our parking lots and connect to internet. Um, we have hotspots there. Um, but if you're in the city of Seaford, there's plenty of hotspots. But when you're out in the country, it's very, very hard to find the internet. So we've had a, we've had a really plan for that as well. You know, I read uh, a story yesterday about a district that is actually building its own Wi-Fi tower because it's cheaper than buying all the hotspots. Um, but it's something like a hundred thousand dollars, which I'm going to guess is not just lying around waiting for you to spend it. No, no, we don't have that kind of money. And we're looking at, you know, there's been a lot of ideas. They've talked about, you know, equipping a bus that with Wi-Fi access that would come around to certain neighborhoods. And uh, we've, we've explored a lot of that, but um, it's sometimes it's just the price is, this is something we can't tackle. So, so you're trying to keep in touch with students. Um, but one of the things that really um, was so interesting to me about Seaford and, and I would hope that folks would go back and listen to the, uh, to the episode on Seaford in extraordinary districts. Um, one of the things you did as assistant superintendent for curriculum instruction is you brought into Seaford a reading program where students only read whole books. Um, are you able to get books to students? You know, like forget the computers. Are you getting books to students? Yeah. Uh, so we have actually, we've sent home materials and I, you know, to the cost of probably $8,000 in, in postage. So, you know, when you think about that, and those numbers are going to keep going up because we have to get materials in everybody's hands. We can't just rely on the technology. Clearly, it's not it's not what our community is able to do. So we have sent home books, and we're actually going to launch something that we're calling uh, One Book, One Seaford. Uh, we're going to be sending home a book. We're working through the logistics of this, but all students will be working through the, um, the same book from kindergarten through um, 12th grade. And obviously, you know, there'll be some more read-alouds at the lower level. There'll be group activities you can do at home, um, opportunities if you have the internet to do it, to watch a TED Talk or do some activities online that are aligned to our book, simple comprehension questions families can do. And we feel like this is another way to try to unite the entire school community around one topic. So we're going we're gonna to see how that goes. Do you, do you, can you give us a hint what the book's going to be? <laughs> we're still actually working through some of that right now. Um, it's hard to have a book that goes kindergarten through 12th grade. Yeah, it, it is. But, you know, it's that's really the challenge. And we know that um, we're trying to find a way that um, where a lot of this stuff can be read aloud, too, with videos, because if we have, we have a high ELL population, so we know that they're not going to not necessarily be able to help us with a read aloud. But if the student is able to click on the book to hear some of it, we're trying to work through some of those logistic logistics. But again, we just think that this is a way to kind of unite everyone together in one common goal. Um, just to link it back to our previous conversation, many of your English language learning students, their parents work at the poultry plants. Correct. Yeah. Um, 
So are teachers able to keep in touch with students maybe by telephone or? Yeah. So, I mean, part of the discussion is with, with the, um, the book we're trying to send home, it's, it's trying to make sure they have ways of, if they can't do a read aloud at home, it's also making sure there may be some, an online component that, um, um, where the students can pick on to read the book. And then I think the, the next question was really around how we keep in contact with our families. So we, we do, we, um, we really work through, um, we're heavy, we're more technology based from grades three to 12 and we're heavy phone K to two in, in paper packets at this time. And, you know, the phone calls that are going home, I, I'll, I'll focus on our K2 population now. A lot of them have been weekly. We're asking everyone to reach out weekly through a phone call. And um, there's really no set time because it's not an eight to three job. I mean, our phone calls may be done from six to nine at night whenever maybe a parent gets off work and we've been very flexible there. Last night we launched, um, if you remember, our schools are set up K235. And basically, we have the east side of our district and we have the west side of our district. And I'm talking now for our elementary schools. The, um, the east side of our district last night launched a, a, a parade. And they had all, like staff and over 100 cars drive through neighborhoods and, and uh, principals. Were, I mean, they were in tears. They were so excited to see students, see parents, see how appreciative it was. Um, and that has been our focus. The learning, yes, but right now it is truly just, it's keeping in contact with everyone and making sure they're safe, making sure they're getting our communications. Um, but we've done some tutoring through phone, you know, um, when the parents, when our teachers call the parents, they say, hey, we're really struggling with something. Um, so we work through that, but we've also had to, to make sure that our parents understand that we don't expect them to be the teacher. And we don't want them to feel that burden either. We just want them to, you know, if they could help them get online, if that's a possibility, make sure that they have a structured spot in their house, if possible, to do some work. But we don't want them to feel the burden that they all of a sudden have to become the teacher. So in our last conversation, we talked with a principal who said she was getting uh, messages from parents saying, please, can I have a substitute today? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I guess they feel yeah. that they are teachers. Yeah. <laughs> um. So so that raises the next question, which is like, how are you thinking about bringing everybody back? Are you thinking about summer school, or are you thinking uh, not till the fall? How and like, what's going to be your primary emphasis when folks come back? So we we continue to make all sorts of different contingency plans. You know, currently in Delaware, we're only closed right now until May 15th. Um, students could come back May 18th. Now, if you ask me if I think that's going to happen, that's a whole other conversation. So yes, we have a plan for students come back May 18th. Um, we've also thought about, well, it might not look the same. If some students come back May 18th, um, it may not be what we're used to where it's, you know, all 500 and some students coming into, to a building. So what does that look like? Do kindergartners come in one day and we spread them out across the school? We're, we just keep thinking about all these scenarios. So after we work through that, then we, we start talking about, well, maybe 
we'll be able to actually bring some students back in in July and what a summer school look like. And maybe it's not a traditional summer school, but we, you know, we try to figure out a way to, to catch some students up who need more support. Then we also are talking about plans for number one, if we come back on time in August next year, and what does the first month of school look like? I think about algebra, or let's just say you have an algebra is the really the backbone of a lot of mathematics when you start going through high school. So we need to make sure that our students have a real firm foundation there. So if I if I'm an eighth grade student who's an advanced student and I'm missing. I don't know, 50 days of instruction on algebra. How are we going to get them caught up in the beginning of the year? We're already talking about that. What does it look like for our kindergartners and first graders who really, that's when they're getting a lot of the, the foundation of reading. What does that look like in the beginning of next year? So we've picked, you know, pockets of our, of our district and thought about ways to get that caught up in the first month. We're also talking about another worst case scenario of we don't come back in September, or it's a, you know, a staggered start somehow. We're talking about that a little bit. And, you know, based on what we're seeing nationally now, if they're saying that December and the, and the winter is going to be even worse than this current, you know, situation is with the coronavirus, then do we got to look at possibly going back to remote learning in December? These are all internal conversations we keep having because not that we're going to have a complete roadmap but I try to keep everyone on their toes thinking like you can't get comfortable in this situation because there's so many unknowns, unknowns. We got to think about what if, what if, what if. So there, there's some of the internal conversations we're having. And who are you having them with? Are you having them with principals, with teachers, with your um, administrative staff in the central office? Who, who, who's, who's part of those conversations? So we start everything internally at the district office level. So we have these conversations with the instructional team, um, directors. And then once we talk things through, like another example is I met with my directors on Tuesday morning and we talked for two hours about some of the possibilities and things we're seeing. And then this afternoon we have a, a Zoom set up with our all of our principals at three o'clock to really start hashing some of the things out. Because, you know, the hard part, we're, we're talking about the mental well-being of our students, the mental well-being of our parents, but we also have to understand our teachers and administrators too, because every educator I've met always wants to do the right thing. This is a scary time. They're unsure whether they're doing the right thing. So I just want to keep, we meet, you know, usually two times a week virtually to have these discussions to make sure everyone's, you know, feeling okay with the direction we're heading in. Have you found something to be helpful in terms of um, helping folks kind of manage their emotions, uh, helping students, teachers, principals uh, manage their emotions around this? I think communication is extremely important because if people don't hear from you, and even if you can't give someone an answer because there's so much unknown Sometimes just having that conversation is important because sometimes when there's is there silence and there's not communication, that's when people begin to make up their own stories. So that's the the biggest thing for me is is the constant communication with my staff. Uh, I, you know, I've sent mass emails to district office staff because we we've launched we have parents 
and uh, teachers who will, you know, take pictures of Zoom conferences or work that students are being done. And we've been posting that on our website because we're still trying to work on that strong sense of community. And we have been receiving a lot of um, positive feedback about the constant communication with with families. And, and that seems to override any conversation about the work that's coming home is too rigorous, not rigorous enough. You know, we're not really in those weeds. It's just about that you guys care. Um, you're really working, you're trying to work with families. And that's that's what's important to us right now. What's your, what do you do every day? I guess I should ask that. What do you, like, what takes up most of your time? You know, uh, my day consists of just a lot of, of Zoom meetings. So, you know, I'm, I'm in constant, my job is a lot of communication with state level officials and to the point where it's from the governor to the Department of Education to our local mayor, local hospital. So I tend to work with them on some, you know, high level information. And then we have to figure out how it comes down to our district. So, we also have a lot of communications with uh, superintendents around the state where we're trying to be on the same page, but we also know that our communities are different as well. So if you're in the northern part of the state, you you may have more opportunities for hotspots and computers and et cetera than we may have on the rural side. But, you know, we all, we all make it work to the best of our ability. But that's been a, a really strong group for me to lean on since I am new to this role. So... I am very much appreciative of that. And then it's a lot of strategy and planning and, and basically what you said, taking a look at where we're at, um, are our students covered? We, we think about that. Um, we also have, and I'm not sure how much we've talked about this before. We have a, um, a summer feeding program that we do. We own about, you know, I'd say four food trucks that we, we do in the summertime for our uh, community. And currently we've launched that, we've launched that, that, uh, a week after the shutdown. So we have about, I think nine current stops that we go out. We start at 1030. We usually wrap up around two, right? Each stop around 30 to 45 minutes. And to date we have, um, given out over 28,000 meals to our community. For a small district, that's extraordinary. It is. And then we also work very closely. We have our own food bank that's housed at our middle school and we'll get, we'll get supplies from the Delaware food bank. Just an example be, say we get them in on a Monday, we do an all call to our families. Hey, we have, um, we have a, a shipment of supplies in our food pantry. Please call to make an appointment. And by Tuesday at four, we're completely sold out. So the need in our community for the essentials is tremendous. And we just can never forget that. And that's really what we've been working towards. So it seems to me you're kind of uh, the soother in chief at, at a certain point. Uh, are there things you're really worried about? Yeah, I, I mean, there's a lot of things <laughs> I'm, I'm worried about. But overall, I'm really worried about the health and safety of all of our students staff, families, and, um, you know, we, we talked about some of our workers, the, the essential personnel who are out in the front lines, who are, you know, they're out there, they're, they could be exposed, but they're also parents too. And then when they start getting sick at home, what that, you know, what that means for our students when able to complete some of the work 
And we, you know, I've stressed that to our principals, like, hey, we, we don't understand the situations at home sometimes. So let's just be aware that someone could be getting sick. And if we don't hear from them, you know, let's keep following up to make sure everybody's okay. Uh, I talked about our food nutrition staff, our custodians who are really out there handing out some of this food. That's a concern for me. We've made sure they've have, they have gloves. We make sure they have masks. Um, we're working on the, the social distancing where we have tables set up. We're able to put the food down and they can pick it up. I'm concerned about that. Um, and, you know, everybody has their own story. So I, you see them as educators when they come into your building and they work, uh, they work hard. But when they leave and they go home, that's a whole other life that I'm, I'm not aware of. They may have family members at home who could have, a, have an illness that they're concerned about that they don't want to come in to pick up um, a computer or whatever it may be. So I worry about all of that. And then I also worry about kindergartners, first graders who need to read. I worry about eighth graders, ninth graders who need to have that strong um, core of algebra. And I, and I worry about our seniors. I worry that the seniors are missing prom. Um, we, we just set up a committee for graduation. And we sent surveys out to, you know, to say, hey, do we want a virtual graduation? Do we want to try to push it to August? Do we want to push this to December? Um, you know, we're trying to just take care of all of our groups who, you know, this impacts so many people. And the other fear factor is that I'm missing somebody. So, I mean, this may seem something small, but I haven't talked to our athletic director in two weeks. So I called him probably about an hour ago to check in on him to make sure where he was at. And you know, it's important that we keep in contact with all the employees the best we can. Well, I really appreciate your taking time to talk with us. Um, I didn't congratulate you on your uh, referendum, but that is a huge deal. And I, um, I think what's really notable about that is that when a district has improved the way Seaford has, under your leadership and Dr. Parrington's leadership and the leadership of other principals, um, it builds confidence in communities and they're more willing to sacrifice uh, their tax dollars to you. And I think that passing of the referendum, which you started with, uh, that was a real testament to the work of everybody in, uh, in Seaford. So yeah, I agree. Congratulations Thank you for on that. that. Thank you. And I agree. And and the first phone call I made after it passed was to uh, Mr. Parrington. Now he's retired and in San Diego, but he's been a, a great mentor of mine. So I want to make sure that he knew that it was a lot of the work that, that he's done and the hard decisions he made. Um, that's why that was able to be passed. Um, do you, are you in touch with him? Do you call him? Yes. Yeah. We talk probably about uh, once every two weeks. Like I said, he's been a really strong mentor of mine and he's an individual where his mind, even though he's retired, he never stops thinking. And he always has a, an idea that he wants to share. And I always appreciate his, uh, his input. Well, um, we may circle back at some point to hear how you and Seaford are progressing, if that's okay. That would be great. We at EdTrust Hope you and your family and everyone in Seaford stay safe and healthy. Um, I want you. to introduce now my colleague, Dr. Tanji Reed Marshall. Tanji is a longtime teacher and EdTrust's director of practice. Tanji, uh, Dr. Miklas is really undergoing a trial by fire. 
Yeah, uh, don't envy it. But I think uh, when you come out on the other side, you come out with so much under your belt and such learning that it spurs you forward in a very important way to, to continue the growth that Seifert's been enjoying over these last few years. So that's really been special to hear about. Well, I mean, he talked so much about equity and how concerned he is about every single child. And, you know, he knows how many students they're not in touch with still. Right. Which is um, fascinating. Right. And, and so important. I think I was struck so much by his compassion and so much by his focus on community. You know, the fact that they want to have a single book, you know, one book, one Seaford. They're talking about, you know, we're trying to send books home. We want parents to know that their job is not to assume the role of a teacher, but they're supporting that. Really being super mindful of the unique place in which we all find ourselves and not adding to the burden. But I love your your point of soother in chief, which I think is critical. And it seems that that is definitely a role that you probably named for him. <laughs> <laughs> well, he just seemed, I, I, we've talked to people who are sort of cheerful. He was more, he was more soothing, Yeah, but, but clearly worried. I mean, clearly. when he sort of ticked off his worries, I just, my, my stomach knotted up. Mm-hmm. I, he must uh, feel pretty concerned all the time. Yeah. And not to say that others are not, but, you know, the particularity and the contextual way in which he voiced the concerns, really recognizing the differences in, well, if you're up north, you might have more access to these kinds of tools. But here we are, you know, in Sussex County and our challenges are unique and contextualized to us with the differentials of who has access to what and how they are addressing the differences between access points, you know, realizing that, hey, we sent home postage, you know, books, we sent home material to the tune of $8,000. We haven't heard that yet. We haven't heard someone really talk specifically about the need for there to be books being given out. And since that's, you you know, really important, particularly me being a literacy focused person, um, that just warms my heart. You know, we want books out get books in front of kids, let kids read, you know, let's unite our community around a reading, which I am going to want to hear so much about and see what they choose. And maybe we'll read it. That's what I was thinking. (laughs) We can join them. (laughs) That would be fun. Well, you and I, uh, you and I love stuff like that, I think. Um, but the challenge of choosing such a book, uh, there must be fights within the English department, don't you think? I would love to be a fly on that wall because I already know they are (laughs) hashing it out about which book and the depth of book and, you know, whether it's going to meet the community's needs where they are and the complexity of this and, you know, who's who's voiced and who's not voiced and what perspectives are raised versus those who are silenced. I can't wait to see the book they choose and would love to get on board and read it myself. Well, and, and, you know, Sussex County is lower Delaware, Mm -hmm. which is a very particular kind of context. And I was, I, I became really interested when I found out that Brian Stevenson, who is the great founder Mm -hmm. of equal justice Institute in uh, Alabama, which defends uh, accused murderers and, and convicted 
uh, incarcerated people. And he's from, from yeah, not, not, not 20 miles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not 20 miles from Seaford. He's from Milton. And I became really interested in that historical context. And by the way, I'll just plug my special edition of the uh, Extraordinary Districts on uh, segregation, in- integration, and the Milford Eleven. It's a very, it's an, it's a little known story about integration in Delaware, uh, which is a very particular state. It's yeah. a, it's a very particular context, and Seaford itself. One reason it will be hard for them to choose a book, I think, is there is no one group. There right. are a lot of groups in right. Seaford, and you know, so there's no one book that. That's no, gonna, well, this will appeal to so-and-so. That's right. And the, the whole idea of perspective and representation and how do we balance out the representations of voice and people in, a, in one single book that's meant to reach across all the grade bands is also going to be, I'm sure, not going to be, but is a discussion on the table as they work through how to choose the right kind of book to do what Dr. Milkless is saying, and that is to unite the community. How do they do that in a single text, which is going to be fascinating. Well, you and I could talk about that for quite a while. Forever. But, <laughs> but one of the things I was struck by is the bread, you know, sometimes we're, we're talking with principals and they have a particular uh, grade band, but superintendents have to think pre-K, through 12th grade, actually, I don't think he has pre-K, but kindergarten through 12th grade, um, which means you're thinking about phonemic awareness and the sounds of the English language and mapping onto letters. And you're thinking about prom and graduation and high school credits and going to college. That's right. I mean, such a band of concerns and that all rests with the superintendent. But then he had the presence of mind to recognize who he forgot and said, I haven't spoken to my athletic director in two weeks, so now I got to go back. So that constant presence of mind of who am I reaching? Who have I missed? Where are the opportunities to keep my community together is definitely um, to be commended. You know, he's spoken so clearly and so passionately in, in his way about the community, you know, he, he brightened up when he talked about the parade, you know, you know, his focus is on community. He said, yes, the learning, but the community has to come first, you know, and we're hearing a lot of people get very concerned about the academics and they have to be, but they got to get that community concern too. And there's a lot of important focus that Dr. Nicholas is doing around the community and making sure that he's touch pointing as many places as he knows he's supposed to and has to and wants to, which I think is really the story, an important story. I think you're exactly right. So I think that wraps up this episode of Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times. Our aim is to bring you the voices of thoughtful educators grappling with all the questions of equity and excellence that face all educators today. I think you heard a great example today uh, with Dr. Corey Miklas from Seaford, Delaware. Please subscribe so you are notified of new episodes. If you think this is valuable, recommend us to folks in your network. 
and leave a review where you got this podcast. And if there's a particular educator you'd like to hear from, let me know who and why. I don't promise that we'll go talk to them, but I'm always interested in hearing about new people. You can email me at extraordinarydistricts at edtrust.org or tweet at edtrust or tweet at me at at Karen Chenoweth or Tanji at at Remarsh 76. Mike Patillo records and edits this podcast from Tonal Park. He was able to record it through the magic of Zoom. I want to thank everybody at EdTrust for helping launch this podcast. And thank you to the Wallace Foundation for its financial support. Thanks and see you next time.